This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the day after Easter show. I have to remind myself of that because it doesn't feel like Monday any more than yesterday felt like Sunday. Hey, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, Texas, and I'm thrilled that you tuned in today. Uh, This is a program, as you know, dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, something, anything going on in your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Uh, numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app if you are driving in your car. The safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Excited about your calls and questions this week. Before I get to questions, I hope and pray you had a wonderful Easter Sunday and Good Friday, too. We had a a Good Friday service, of course, online and didn't have people here. The same thing was true on Easter. And while it was really different, I mean, this is a time... Uh, On Easter, we rent a big place, the Judson High School Performing Arts Center, and we fill it up a couple of times, and there's always people to get saved, so it was a really different dynamic yesterday, but it was uh, also wonderful, had a lot of response, lots and lots of people who were watching. Uh, I got really blessed this morning. Paula said, Ron, you got to come and look at this, and I went in, and she had pictures that were sent from my uh, kids and my, my son and his wife uh, in California and the pictures were the kids watching uh, me on the live stream yesterday and when I said would you pray with me and they had pictures of them all in prayer and oh what a wonderful wonderful thing that was for me so whatever I missed out on yesterday that made up for it well let me get right to some questions whatever's on your heart or mind the first one that we have sent in is from Arnie he says, Pastor Ron, how can anyone be sure they are really saved? Sometimes I feel okay, and other times I feel lost. Arnie, your circumstances is not at all unusual. I think we need to remember always that we have an enemy out there, and his job is to steal. He wants to steal the security that God has given you. And here's what you do. You've got to resolve that I'm not going to depend on how I feel, I'm going to depend instead on what I know. I can't tell you how important this is, Arnie. Uh, The enemy's always going to bring doubt. He's always going to have questions. The first time you blow it, he's going to be right there to condemn you. Remember, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 says. So when you're feeling condemned, or maybe when things aren't going quite so well, uh, you don't have the goosebump Christian experience, you have to remember that your faith is not in how you feel, Your faith is what the Word of God declares. My Bible says, your Bible, Arnie, says that Jesus holds you in His hands, and the Father who is greater than He also has you in the hands, and no one can snatch you from His hands. So what you've got to remember is what God said. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're told that He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So often... The enemy tries to make us feel like, well, we've got to do something. We've got to be the ones who... No, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. So this really is, are you a matter of faith? Are you going to choose to believe what you feel or what you know? 
I've been walking with Jesus now for 29 years. And a wonderful gift God has given me. I've been able to hold on to what I know in spite of anything or everything that's going on around me. So Arnie, here's how I know. I've got the inner witness of God's Spirit. You and I, we have been given the right to call out to our Abba. We've been adopted because of what Jesus did. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And God doesn't give back. God doesn't take back. And He, not you, not me, Arnie, He is our security. And when you got saved, Ephesians chapter 1 says that you were given a deposit, the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. Now it's God who's making the guarantee. So there's nothing that you can do to take away or to diminish the power of His guarantee. So it's really important. I want to consider one other thing, Arnie, and this isn't to make you feel condemned, but rather to help you examine your heart. Sometimes we're supposed to feel a little lost. By that I mean those times when we're in sin, our fellowship is broken from God. We've chosen to make some bad choices. We haven't repented. We haven't returned to God. And our Bible is written. The Holy Spirit, in fact, will not let somebody who is living in sin feel secure in his or her salvation. So the way you deal with that is to get right with God. Arne, you might remember in the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven separate churches. They all had different issues. But the one that really hits home in my heart is the letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2. Jesus commends them. They're a good church. They're doing the right things. From our cultural perspective, we'd say, oh, they're growing and they look really healthy. But then Jesus said this, yet I have one thing against you. And that one thing was that they lost, lost and literally that's left their first love. Maybe you're not as in love with Jesus as you once were. Maybe you aren't in those times you feel lost. You're not opening the Word. I know you don't feel like opening the Word, but you're not opening the Word expecting that God Himself is going to speak to you. You're not getting up in the morning excited about what God has planned for you. You once did, and those are the times when you feel okay. In fact, you feel better than okay. But we have a tendency, we humans, it's part of our sad condition, we have a tendency to sort of drift away. We, we take for granted the presence of Jesus every day. Maybe you've not been involved serving others at your church. So Arnie, do the things you did first. That was Jesus' counsel to the church at Ephesus. Remember the height from which you'd fallen. Repent. That's just saying, God, I'm sorry. You're right. I'm wrong. And then the third counsel was return and do the things you did at first. Remember that passion you once had. Get it again. Aren't even going to tell you a secret. We have a Good Friday tradition here at Calvary Chapel. This year we did it. Certainly not as many people were able to do it, but we had a, a big wooden cross that somebody gave us a long time ago. Actually, they made it for us. And every Good Friday night as people are coming in, we um, you can hear the, the pounding of hammers and nails into that cross. And people are nailing things to that cross on Good Friday that the empty tomb on Sunday promises deliverance from. And the one thing that I put on my... I'm always the first one to nail something on the cross, right in the middle of the cross beam. And mine this year was passion. I, I want my passion to grow. I don't want to be okay staying the way I am. I don't want to be... Well, I know I'm saved. I want to experience the joy and the glory of being saved every single day. And so, Arnie, if you'll do that, 
you'll be okay. And then when you don't feel okay, you'll still be okay. That's important. Thank you, Ernie. Appreciate the question. Uh, 3409585 for your live calls. Here's a question from Chip from our email inbox. What happened to Cain after he killed Abel and then left Adam and Eve? And how did he die? Because he did not repent from his sin, would he be the first human occupant and longest resident of Hades? You know, Chip, we don't get any of those details. We know that he went to the land of Nod, east of Eden. We know that. Uh, There he got married. There he had his children and his ancestors. But we don't know how he died. And since we don't have any um, question or any information about his destination or about his death, um, we know that he spent eternity separated from God. Now, as he was the, as to whether he was the first human occupant of Hades or not, um, certainly that's not the case. Cain lived a long time, and in the the uh, pre-Diluvian world, lots of people died before he did, and all of them who died apart from believing the word of God, looking forward to the cross on that side of the cross. Uh, on our side of the cross, we look back at the cross. ought to be easier for us. Um, everybody who doesn't believe spends forever in torment. Not their final resting place, but their torment. Hope that makes sense to you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from... Oh. I'm sorry, I got a phone call waiting, so let me take that. Let's go to Jonestown, Texas, and talk with Dale. Dale, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I had a question that's perplexed me for some time, and maybe you could help me out. Um, I'll try. It has to be uh, Matthew 24, mm-hmm. verse 20. And he's discussing the end times with the disciples, and he says, pray that your flight not be in the winter, nor on a Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And I think what's confusing for me is, I thought the Sabbath was no longer to be observed, but he's asking them to pray that it doesn't happen on a Sabbath. Yeah, Dale, that, that's really, uh, you're, you're, you're just looking at the, the passage of Scripture from a different perspective. Now remember, this is the Olivet Discourse, and the Olivet, Olivet Discourse is in its entirety Jewish in context. And he's looking down the quarter of time and space to a time that you and I won't uh, be here. In, in fact, uh, he says in verse 20, pray that your flight will not take place when winter the Sabbath. And then in the next verse he says, for then... There will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So what he's saying is that, that uh, again, this is a Jewish issue, and this is the, the time of the Great Tribulation when God is going to again deal with his people, Israel, uh, and they are going to be observers of the Sabbath. They're going to be observers of the Law of Moses until Jesus comes uh, and... and uh, uh, discloses himself to, to the people there. So uh, the reason that the flight would not take place in winter would be harder to move. Uh, in another gospel account, he says, uh, Prince, you won't be a nursing mother or on the Sabbath. Why? Because you couldn't move quickly enough. There's one other comment here that I want to make that we also have to understand. It's a little difficult to explain without a long exposition. This is a prophecy in Matthew, uh, also in Luke, that has both a short-term and a long-time fulfillment. In this particular place, he's talking about two things. Um, He's talking about 
um, the end times, as I just explained, during the Great Tribulation. But he's also talking about a time that from the moment Jesus gave this this message, it was only about 38 years in the future, to 70 A.D., when he says that, that the Romans are going to circle and circle the city and completely destroy it. We know that 70 A.D. was when the temple was completely destroyed. And these words were were for the people living at the time Jesus was speaking, as well as for the time down the corridor of time and space in the Great Tribulation. Now, Josephus writes to us that there are there, there were some Jews remembering Jesus' words is when they saw the Roman general Titus and his armies surrounding the city, they remembered Jesus' words, and some of them got out and got out quickly. Um, they're the ones who were saved from, from the utter destruction. Those who didn't take heed of Jesus' words, well, they were the ones who were completely devastated. Um, the, the city so devastated, and the temple in particular, that there was just nothing left except what we see on TV, the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. There was nothing left at all of the temple. So there, this is a Jewish context. We need to remember that 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 doesn't apply to us, but it will apply to those Jews in the last days. My final comment on this, Dale, is that if you read the prophecy of Zechariah, he says, on the day Jesus returns, they will see him in the sky. They will say, where did you get those wounds? And he will say, I got these in the house of my friends. And they will begin to fall down and weep. And one third of the Jews, only one third of the Jews who see him return, will understand that he was the Messiah and they missed him the first time. Two-thirds are going to be destroyed uh, in, in, uh, the, the, by the word when Jesus returns with you and with me as the church. So you, you've got to remember always the Jewish context of Jesus' ministry and in particular the message of the Olivet Discourse. Does that help you? Yeah, so he's speaking to observant, but mostly unbelieving Jews. Well, remember that his his immediate audience was almost entirely unbelieving Jews. These are the people that, in a matter of days, are going to put him to death. And so, so he's he's speaking to them, still warning them, even though he knows they're going to kill him. They're plotting his death as he speaks. Uh, he's still trying to warn them and trying to to win them over. So, yeah, he's speaking. His immediate audience is to unbelieving Jews, those who will be yelling, give us Barabbas, crucify him. And, uh, and, and the, the entire context of the Olivet Discourse is Jewish. Very good. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Bye. I'm going to thank you, Dale. I'm going to go ahead and answer another question here uh, that I've got uh, later down just because Dale brings it up. Uh, but I've got uh, a question from, let me see if I can find it real quick. It's from Gregory. And he says, in Matthew 24, it talks about two men grinding away in the field and one being taken and the other left. Is this about the rapture? So, um, Dale, this is for you as well and Gregory for you. Um, remember, the Olivet Discourse has nothing to do with believing Christians. Has nothing whatsoever to do with the rapture. This is all and only a message to Jews. And so, what Matthew 24 is saying, there's going to be two men, one grinding away in the field and the one being taken, uh, and the other left. The question where are they taken? They're taken to judgment. And they're going to be judged. And in this particular case, the short term fulfillment is, is in 70 AD. The long term fulfillment will be. Uh, during the Great Tribulation when um, some of the Jews will be saved, uh, a, a remnant of Jews, and the others will not. But this is certainly not at all about the rapture of the church. Jesus gives one hint about the rapture. In John chapter 14, he says uh, to his disciples whose lives are crumbling, their hearts are being crushed now, he says, uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. And that's a hint of the rapture. And that's all we get from Jesus. Now, the, the mystery of the rapture of the church was given to the Apostle Paul. 
Paul was the beneficiary of, of four separate mysteries. And that Greek word is a word that says nothing ever before spoken or taught about. Um, and, and, and the Lord says, you know, um, we will not all sleep, um, but we will. Some of us will be taken away, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he talks about the rapture of the church. But that's a completely different message in a completely different context. So, Greg, the rapture of the church is just for those who are born-again believers. Everybody else is going to be left behind. So, Jesus in Matthew 24, the same thing is true in Luke chapter 21, is not at all speaking about the rapture. Uh, He's speaking about uh, that time during the Great Tribulation uh, when they will be judged. Good question. Teddy says, Pastor, on online, someone said this plague is God judging America because of Trump. What do you say? Um, Teddy, uh, what, um, pardon me for saying it this way, but you're spending too much time online. Don't read that junk. This is not a plague of God judging America. God, this is a plague that is reaching the entirety of the world. Now, I, I've said this, a, a lot of questions I've had about this uh, coronavirus plague. Um, um, certainly God is using it to get the attention of the whole world at the same time. And with all of my heart, I believe the biblical precedence, the only times that God has gotten the attention of the whole world were times when judgment was coming. And I believe judgment is coming. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is getting ready to return for his church. It could happen at any moment. Um, So the church's job, I've also said, Teddy, that I think this plague is designed by God or will be used by God. He didn't cause it, but it will be used by God to shake up his church, literally to shake out his church. We need to be tougher. We need to be more invested in the mission of winning souls. That's what Jesus has has given us to do. So um, I think the church needs to get serious about its mission. But to understand that God would be judging America, remember, we who are believers, we're still here. And I'm not going to be judged. Jesus was judged for me. And since I'm not going to be judged, we're not appointed under wrath, Paul writes to the churches in Thessalonica, but appointed to salvation. So we're not going to be beneficiaries of the wrath of God. It's just too easy, Teddy, to listen to this drivel online. Um... Remember, any message from God, even the warnings, come bundled in love. And when there's no love, it's not from God. So uh, God's not judging America. Uh, He will one day judge everybody. But in the interim, our focus, Teddy, needs to be on one thing and one thing only. And that one thing is completing the mission that Jesus has given us to tell the whole world about who he is. So be more discerning with what you're reading online. Uh, Here is a question. Might as well get it out before the uh, break. Um, I've had it for a couple of days. It's an anonymous question. And he or she wants to know, is anal sex okay between married couples? Um, I purposely held this question for now because I've only got a couple of minutes uh, no, it's not okay, Anonymous. It is not okay. Um, whatever husband and wife want to do that isn't prohibited by the Bible is okay. Sex is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be adventurous. It's supposed to be playful. But anal sex is clearly forbidden in Scripture. It is clearly forbidden. And for people to think, well, you know, that's only speaking about homosexual sex. No, it's not. Anal sex is not the intent. And we want to love men, we want to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. He wouldn't defile her in that way. So it's simply not okay. Um, Any opinion to the contrary is wrong and contrary to the Word of God. Uh, So we need to remember the marriage bed must be pure. And when we defile it, there's lots of ways to defile it. Pornography, there's lots of ways to defile it with fantasies, other people, those kinds of things. But but anal sex is certainly one of the ways that would defile 
the beautiful thing that God has given us as a gift that enables us to have babies but have a great deal of pleasure in the process. So I hope that answers your question. The answer to your question is no. We have one minute left. See if I have a quick one I could Okay, I don't have a quick one I can do, so I'll hold these over to the other side. Uh, remember um, our number, 340-9585. We would love to have your live calls and questions. I tell you often, you're more interesting than I am. So all you have to do is call us at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. Again, I hope you had a great Easter yesterday. You might want to call and share what it was like to have Easter, watching it online. Hey, we'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. You'll understand why I didn't want to take this question in a hurry at the end of that awkward break. I apologize for that. It is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I committed adultery. And I want to confess to my wife and get rid of the pressure I'm under. What if she leaves me? Um, Anonymous, I I just did a teaching on this. Um, Gosh, I'm thinking it was in 1 Timothy, but I really don't remember. They all kind of run together now. But um, when we sin, we have to accept the full weight of the responsibility for our sin. And that means living with the consequences. You did it. You need to confess it. First, of course, to God. He's the one that you sinned against. Remember when Joseph was being seduced by Potiphar's wife? And he said, you know, your husband has entrusted everything to me. I have, I can, I have Everything's in him except you. How could I do this thing and sin against God? When David sinned against Bathsheba, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. So, um, your sin is first and foremost against God. Confess to Him. And then take responsibility. Go to your wife. Tell her you've got something really terrible to tell her. Tell her you're sorry. Ask her if she could ever forgive you. And then live with whatever happens. It is possible she will leave you. The Bible says if somebody commits adultery, then you're free to divorce. If one in a marriage, the, the, the victim of the adultery is free to leave. She may leave. But if so, your job now is to be closer to Jesus than you've ever been. That's what it means to accept responsibility. Now, please, this is hard to explain, but this is so important. If your wife gets angry and leaves you, what she needs to see, and God's Spirit will work, God's always for reconciliation in cases like this. But what she needs to see is a man who's completely changed. I mean, think about it. If if the marriage is reconciled, then she's going to have to trust you again. How could she trust you if you don't accept responsibility? If she puts you out and... You think, well, what am I going to do now? She's going to be watching how you live. And you want to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to point to you a man who is truly repentant, a man who is accepting responsibility for what he did, a man who has grown closer to Jesus in the interim. And God will will deal with her heart. 
But you did the crime, and now you got to suffer the consequences. And if she leaves you, she leaves you. Now what are you going to do with Jesus? If she sees that you're going to get closer to the Lord, I promise you the Holy Spirit will use that. But the reality is that she is free to divorce you if um, because of what you did. And if she does, the truth is you deserved it. Now, that doesn't make people happy, but the truth is we've got to own our sins. So I hope that makes sense to you, and I'll be praying. Let's go to line one and talk with Cindy from San Antonio. Cindy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Happy day Hi, after Easter. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. We miss you. Oh, I miss you guys so much. But I'm really grateful that I can see you online. That that's a real blessing. You know what? I, I was I watched the Passion of the Christ on Friday, and I've seen it before, so I was pretty prepared for um for how um how it is. And I had a couple questions, and I'm wondering about when the sins of the world were put on Jesus. If it was if it started in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then transferred, you know, started to get more when he was being beaten, and then finalized on the cross. And I thought, well, if it was just on the cross, then I was curious why he was beaten, because in the Old Testament, animals weren't beaten before they were sacrificed. And since Jesus was our sacrifice, I thought, well, why why was he beaten? But then it led me to the scripture that says, by his stripes we are healed. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about all that, and I'll just leave you with that basket of questions and listen <laughs> on the radio. Thank you, Cindy. God bless you. You know, um, let's let's divorce the two episodes. The 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 agony in the garden was not the wrath of God. Jesus was still in full fellowship with with his Father in the garden. In fact, it was an angel sent by his Father who attended to him physically so that he could survive the agony. What Jesus was dealing with in the Garden of Gethsemane was the full, all out vicious attack of Satan. This was the full forces, the full power of hell coming against Jesus in the garden. That's why it was so horrible. He sweated great great drops of blood. I mean, his body was, was spent. So that was the full forces of hell coming against him. When he began to take the punishment our sins deserved, the wrath of God poured out on Jesus through sinful men, that's when he began taking the wrath of God, the judgment that we deserve. Now certainly it culminated on the cross. I'll be even more specific, Cindy. I talked in my message yesterday about, or Friday rather, Friday night and Good Friday. I talked about those three hours of darkness from high noon until three o'clock in the afternoon. The earth, not just Jerusalem, the earth turned dark. And that was when Jesus cried out, My God, my God. You might remember, it's the only time he called his father anything other than Father or Abba. But on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was when the full wrath of God was being poured out on him for you and for me. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And this just wasn't Jesus accepting the responsibility for our sins. He literally was becoming our sins, Cindy. That doesn't make him guilty because we did it, not him. But he bore our sins in his body and then, of course, bore the attendant wrath of God that came as a result so, um, from the moment they started beating him, that's why Isaiah 53 says, the punishment that brought us peace, or the chastisement, I like better, the King James says, that brought us peace was placed upon him. This is the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. And by his stripes, the stripes coming from men, but really from God, Those stripes allowed us not to suffer those same punishments. By his stripes, 
we're healed. That's not physical healing in the atonement. We're healed from the disease of sin, the only one that is 100% fatal all the time. And again, that's why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in those last three hours, he cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. And then he committed his spirit into his Father's hands. And the results in these, we were saved. For those of you who are interested, uh, not that I think anybody would be particularly interested in my studies, but uh, the study that I did Friday night for Good Friday and Sunday, I think, go really well together. Um, you can listen to them for free. All of our stuff is for free at calvarysa.com. Um, and I would invite you to uh, sort of get involved in the process by listening to those messages. Cindy, thank you. We miss you. Please give everybody that you see that I don't get to see our love. Uh, Rich says, I find the Bible confusing sometimes. Why didn't God make it easier to understand? Um, Rich, I think it's supposed to be confusing sometimes. God's ways are not our ways, and we don't think the way he thinks. You know, he has a big picture. We've got only that little myopic picture right in front of us. Um, but but it's not as confusing as people think. And when somebody asks me, and I've got the, had this question, why isn't it easier to understand? I, I think there's so much of it that is so simple to understand, Rich, that if we would do that, some of the confusing passages would be less confusing. I think it's very straightforward. You know, Rich, when I was first saved, and I've I've talked many times about my struggle with the Bible. Uh, brand new Christian, a, a logical grown man. I was 40 years old when I was going through this. And, and I would ask so many questions of people. Hey, I'm a brand new Christian. What about this? What about that? And they would always say, the Bible says, the Bible says. And I didn't understand how the Bible could be the Word of God if it was written by men. And yet, when I finally wrestled with that concept... I found that it wasn't as confusing as I thought it was. I could read something in it, and immediately I knew I had to change my life. Flee from sexual immorality. That's not hard to understand. In everything, give thanks. That's not hard to understand. Didn't say for everything, give thanks, but in everything, give thanks. It says to die to our flesh so we can live for Him. That's not difficult to understand. Don't use foul language. Be kind to people. Those are not hard things to understand. And Rich, I think when we do those things that are so simply straightforward, I think it sort of lifts the cloud in our brain and in our heart over those things that it might be a little more difficult to understand. Now, to be sure, there are difficult passages in the Scripture. Even the Apostle Peter, calling Paul's letters Scripture, he said, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. But that's why we study, Rich. So you do the simple things, the straightforward things, and I promise you, you'll have some clarity on some of the more difficult things. And then, frankly, I think there's some things God wants us to chew on. He wants us to really, really dig into. Study to show yourself approved. Work men, work women, rightly dividing the Word of God. And here's what I found from the very beginning, Rich, that when I opened up my Bible and read it, I knew that I had to change the way I was behaving. I knew I had to change the decisions that I was making and how he responded to certain things. And as a result of saying, okay, I can't do that anymore, so I'm going to do what you say, Lord, um, he began to clear up the Bible for me. Now, again, I don't have all the answers, to be sure. But I can promise you this. Um, I know the Word of God has the answer to everything that we're ever going to go through. So, Rich, I hope that helps. Let's go to Darlene's question next. Since the Bible was written by sinful men, how can we trust it to be God's Word? Well, Darlene, it wasn't... It was written by men whose sins were forgiven. Of course, they were guilty of sin. We all are. They're in the process of sanctification or they were when they were writing God's Word, just, just as we are. But we have to remember this dynamic. 
The Word of God is, is Scripture. It's breathed by God. And literally, when Paul uh, says that, that, that Scripture is inspired, the, the literal picture in Greek is it's the, the, the breath of God pushing the pen of men. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll see that God would, would tell Moses these stories and tell him to write down these things, and he would write all the detail. That was God the Spirit working through Moses to leave us that record. Well, the same thing was true in the New Testament. Uh, I don't think, personally, that Paul knew he was writing Scripture. I don't think when Peter or James or John or any of the Gospel writers were writing, I don't think, I think they would just, they set out with the right heart to write an account of Jesus' life and ministry. The epistles were just communication. But, but see, behind the scenes, it was God who was doing all of the pushing of the pen. And he did it that we would have a written record of what we need to live. The scriptures give us everything useful, everything that we need. We can be rebuked, we can be encouraged, we can be corrected. All we have to do is believe it. So, Darlene, here's what you need to do more than anything else. And I've said this a hundred times on this program over our nearly eight years doing this. You've got to decide. Dig in. You've got to decide whether this is the Word of God or the Word of men. It's not so important to understand how. Now, it will help you after you make that decision to, to dig in and find out how we got the canon of Scripture. It's quite interesting, actually. But you've got to decide. For me, it took me almost three months until I had no doubt that the Bible was the Word of God. Now, I was a pretty new believer at the time. So I certainly didn't have all the answers. But God showed Himself to me. He rewarded my diligent searching. And I'll never forget the day it was at a School of Theology Library, a really bad school of theology, by the way. I had this room that I'd get all to myself. I'd spend literally 8, 10, 12 hours a day in there. And I remember having all these books spread out. I'd just been, for, for almost three months, really, really determined to find out if this really was the Word of God. And in that room that I was in with all those books. Jesus met me there. Now, not I didn't. He didn't appear to me or anything, but it was as though he was sitting in that room. And it was as though he was looking at me and saying, "Okay, is that enough?" I opened a book. Okay, is that enough? And finally, after searching, one day I sat back in my chair and began to cry. And I could almost see his smile. I wrestled through all of the intellectual questions. And the witness of the Holy Spirit was so powerful that I couldn't ignore it for another minute. And I basically surrendered. I said, I am convinced this is your word. And now, Lord, by your power for the rest of my life, this is going to be the word that determines how I live my life. And I can tell you, Darlene, in that time, I have never had even a moment of doubt about my salvation. I've never had even a moment of doubt about God's love for me. Not a moment. In really difficult times, I just lean on what I know for sure. So Darlene, that's your challenge. It'll be the best investment that you ever make. Here's a question just came in from John from our email inbox. Uh, I'm pretty sure that our current battle with the coronavirus did not start with someone eating a poorly cooked bat. I'm not so sure, John. Anyway, however, that rumor as in the Chinese or oriental interest in eating exotic foods to include eating bats gives credence to God's law forbidding Jews from eating such creatures in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 13 and 19. Uh, I'll read that because he included it. These are the birds that you are to guard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The stork, any kind of heroin, the hoopoe, and the bat. And as well. We're given to Israel to keep them healthy. 
to keep them from from having the disease of the pagan peoples around them it was a very timely and healthy way for God to give his people strength. And God says, don't eat stuff that's bad for you. Now, in the New Testament, God declares all foods clean. Now, I'm not sure whatever the hoopoe is, um, the, the bat was never intended to be eaten. So, you know, we, we need to exercise good health and control. Now, my son, um, Terry, goes to uh, Hong Kong a lot. He's um, They have a business there. And uh, he, he spent some time, a year and a half, in Thailand. He speaks, um, he spoke Thai. I'm not sure he's fluent anymore. Uh, he speaks fluent Japanese. Um, and, and he just kind of picks up on the languages where he is. And one of the things he used to tell me walking in the street markets and stuff, he said, Dad, they're just not concerned about the, the, the health of their food there. You find a hair in the food or something, and they go, hey, just take it out. You know, they, they don't have that info. Um, so, John, I, I'm, I, I think th- this, this whole idea of the, 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 the bat being crushed with all these other things is sort of the low-hanging fruit. It gives something for journalists to hold on to. Um, personally, I think the Chinese government had a role in this. There's just too much silence and too many questions. Uh, I don't want to give any credibility to conspiracy theories. I don't read them. I'm just, that's my opinion. Um, but remember that um, God said everything is clean now. Whatever he's given us to food, we just need to be uh, judicious in in our use and our execution of the things that we eat. So I hope that makes sense, John. Thank you for sending the question in. We've got five minutes. Where did the time go? Here's a question from Jackson. He says, Pastor Ryan, what is meant by the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12? Does that mean the Bible indicates there's life on other planets? Jackson, the third heaven is simply a reference to the dwelling place of God. Um, what Paul is doing, he's just looking at what he can see. The first heaven, we would say, look at the sky, it's cloudy today. The second heaven would be what we call outer space. Our, our eyesight doesn't go there, but we know it's out there. The third heaven is like infinitely beyond that. And Paul is referring to the dwelling place of God. Now remember, Jackson, he was stoned to death and taken to the third heaven and he saw things that he said that are, are, are impossible to describe, things that man is not permitted to talk about. So that's what he's referring to, to the third heaven. It's not like there are, uh, there's three different levels of heaven, what we would normally consider heaven. He's just talking about the, 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 the beyond what is, is what we can see and what we can know uh, by our telescope. So out there, wherever God is, that's where he's referencing and, uh, of course, he had been there, so he knew what he was talking about. Regarding where the Bible indicates whether there's life on other planets, it doesn't. I'm, I'm 100% confident, Jackson, that there's no life on other planets. It doesn't mean that the planets couldn't sustain life or that we couldn't find elements that, that, that could possibly support life. I know there's been liquid discovered on several planets. We're, we're, we're in the process of trying to get to Mars for some unexplainable reason. But um, Jesus became a man to die for the sins of man. I want you to think about something. If God were to create other planets and life on those other planets, he'd have to be whatever was on those other planets in order to reconcile them to God. They would be required to be holy too. And the truth of the matter is Jesus became a man. That's all. He didn't become a Martian. He didn't become uh, an alien. He became a man. And if there were life on other planets, doesn't it make sense that a God of creation, a God who is love, would also create an ability for the people on those planets or the, the, the life forms on those planets? Then they too would have to have a way to get back to God. And so Jesus would have to come. Let's say there was a, a planet of dogs. Jesus would have to become a dog. There's a planet of cockroaches. They have become a cockroach. Um, so I'm I'm a hundred percent convinced that there is no life on other planets. Uh, I have no doubt that people see things in the sky. Uh, those things are just not 
uh, spaceships, unidentified flying objects is good. I think the demon world is complicit in a lot of this deception. But uh, Jackson, we are so passionate about that he sent his son to die for. And we need to rejoice in our privileged position in this universe. So hope that answers your questions. i got time for maybe one more. Um, Jerry says in second in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says, It is he speaking and not God. What does it say about inspiration or inerrancy? Let me read the verse, Jerry. It says, To the rest I say this, and then parenthetically it says, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Now, Paul's answering questions that the Corinthians had asked him. And so here's, he's just saying, this is what I think is the case. Now, when he says, I, not the Lord, he's giving his perspective on it. But what we know is that this is the Holy Spirit of God pushing the pen of men. So even though Paul wasn't aware that he was writing scripture, the Holy Spirit was. So while he says, uh, this is what I think, this isn't, I mean, he wasn't giving attribution to the Lord for this. We know that it turned out to be exactly the word of God. So it doesn't say anything negative about inspiration or inerrancy at all. Good question, Jerry. Hey, we are done for today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.